Hi, I'm David Thorburn again. I introduced the conference, and I, I, I asked William to let me take two minutes to uh, uh, say a few extra things about the way things have been going, and I also want to introduce William uh, Uricchio before, before I'm through here. Uh, one of the things I wanted to say, and I'm sorry that uh, only a, uh, a third of the conference is actually in the room at the moment. I hope those of you who are outside are hearing this. Uh, I want to respond to what has not been exactly a complaint. Sometimes it's been said with awe and pleasure, uh, uh, but I've heard many, many comments from folks about how overcrowded our agenda is. And some people have even recognized that unintentionally I misled you yesterday when I said that yesterday's day was the most difficult because it's actually today that's the most overcrowded, uh, as you will see, especially if you look at the uh, agenda for the afternoon activities after this plenary conversation. Uh, and uh, I wanted to mention two things about this, although I can see people are not uh, too intimidated by the schedule or there would be a much larger group in the room. Uh, uh, I, I guess I wanted to encourage people to uh, try the weather and to, to take advantage of the fact that the, the last two days have been the, 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 the best days of 2009 in Boston in terms of weather. Uh, there's so much to attract you around MIT itself that, that uh, it, it's certainly understandable that many of you might uh, take the time to uh, indulge in those pleasures. And I, I wanted to encourage members of the conference to do so. Uh, some of you may know, many of you I assume may know the famous and in some ways inaccurate metaphor that's often uh, used to describe an MIT education. Uh, it is said that, uh, that, trying to get a, that getting an MIT education is like trying to drink from a fire hose, trying to take a drink from a fire hose. And uh, however inappropriate that is as a metaphor for education, it may be an appropriate metaphor for our conference. Uh, and uh, I wanted to take this opportunity, therefore, to encourage those of you who have not yet turned in full papers to do so because there are so many difficult choices individuals have to make about which panel to attend. Almost everyone I've spoken to about this matter has said, gee, you know, I went to this panel, but I, I was just as interested in this other one that I couldn't go to. If you turn your papers in and we can post them on the web, people who missed your panel will be able to get uh, a sense of your argument. And that that's a further incentive, I hope, for those of you who haven't yet sent us your papers to do so. Uh, the second thing I want to do is uh, uh, very quickly r remind everyone that since this is a conference about, in some degree, storage and archiving, that the media, the previous media and transition conferences are available on the web, including a significant, uh, uh, a substantial proportion of the full papers that were delivered at those conferences are available. Can we... Uh, uh, can we clip? There, here we are. And you can see here on this web page, you can, you can access it from the MIT6 web page, you can see here the, pre the previous conferences. And I, I, won't, I won't ask you to click on them now, but you can see any of those live links will take you to the, to the website of previous media and transition conferences. One of the things you'll notice is that as the conferences go on, they become, the, the documentation becomes more Im impressive and elaborate. So for the very first Media and Transition Conference, all we have are text summaries, although they're very elegant text summaries because I wrote most of them. Uh, but, but, but then as we, went, as we went on, we were able to, to, to do uh, some, some video, some audio, and, and post 
uh, full, in many cases, full papers. Uh, it, it seems, and then one other thing I wanted to mention to you is that the history of the communications forum has now been made available. Could we go to the dome site? Uh, this is a site uh, uh, at the MIT libraries, and the MIT libraries has just completed uh, a, a, a project in which the previous history of the communications forum, insofar as we had any documentation at all, has been recovered and is available now on the web. At some point, we'll, we're going to find some way of linking this material to our to the media to the to the communications forum website more generally. But this material goes back into the 19. 70s, I think, maybe even a little earlier than that. Most of it is text summaries, but the history of the forum is now part of the uh, uh, storage and, and, and archiving system at MIT, and I'm happy to mention that. Thir I have a third uh, thing I wanted to say this morning. First, I wanted to, there was one person that many of you have noticed floating around the conference, and I wanted to uh, say a thank you to him and, and, and acknowledge his, his valuable contributions to the communications forum over the last few years, and that's our photographer, Greg Peveril Conti. And some of you may have seen him. He's, uh, uh, he's a, uh, he just has a new short haircut and a, and a very dramatic athlete's goatee. Uh, and he's been wandering around the conference taking photographs. So when you see him, Greg, thank you, Greg. And finally, I want, I want to, to respond to uh, requests I've had. Many people have asked me, who is Brad Sewell? <laughs> this is Brad Sewell. The conference, the conference would be impossible without him. Okay, thanks. I just wanted to point out that Greg got that athletic goatee from me. So that's all. <laughs> thanks. Uh, finally, I want to introduce the moderator of today's session, my colleague and friend, William Uricchio. Uh, there's been a lot of talk appropriately at this conference about Henry Jenkins' departure. And it is a, a lamentable and, and catastrophic event in some ways for those of us at MIT, although we're comforted by the fact that he, although he'll be across, uh, across the country, uh, he will continue to consult with us and be part of our ongoing conversation about media. But one of the unfortunate consequences of this focus on our, on our visionary leader has been a kind of uh, obscuring of his co-director, William Uricchio. And it, it is arguable that William's contribution to CMS and to the life of MIT has been equal to Henry's. Uh, he has been a selfless uh, laborer in the cause of media study at MIT. And as some of you know, Uricchio is, is a very, very distinguished scholar. Uh, he's written brilliant books about the early history of, uh, uh, of movies, and among his recent publications is a book published in 2006 called Media Cultures, Responses to Post-9-11 in Germany and the United States, and he has a forthcoming book titled We Europeans, Media, uh, New Collectivities, and Europe. Uh, he's a leading media theorist and, and, and uh, uh, film historian, an ornament to MIT's comparative media studies program, and he deserves some time in the sun himself. Thanks, David. Thank you very much for the kind words. I'll do my ornamental best, uh, <laughs> or my best to ornament this, this distinguished panel up here. Um, uh, Indeed, I'm, I'm, a, I'm primarily a historian, and as a historian embedded in an institution, and I guess most of us have institutional identities, um, this panel on institutional perspectives on storage uh, will ring 
some bells, have some resonance, I hope. Um, institutions are all about reifications, and we know from folks like Foucault that there are always kinds of structures, agendas, uh, powers built into those. And um, the folks here at the panel all represent public uh, institutions, and um, European public institutions at that, where the public has a, a somewhat more robust feel and um, a set of dimensions than, than here in the US. So it's a really, it's, it's I think a very important um, discussion that's about to ensue. Um, as a historian, I'm, I'm prone to, uh, as one of my colleagues very critically put it, prone to read boxes, you know, kind of go through dusty boxes and find stuff. But, um, but being at MIT has really helped me to think about new strategies for coherence and containment. Uh, looking at new kinds of data sets, it's not so much, I mean, I still do boxes, but I also do a lot of other stuff. And, and, and that's led, actually, to some very interesting work with, um, with UNESCO. Uh, UNESCO has a number of, of remits, and um, heritage is one of the big ones. And heritage, of course, is, 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 is intimately connected to the world of archives. And uh, the big question is, I mean, we know, especially in tradition-bound institutions, we know very, very well what we should be gathering. You know, we get feature films, and we get mainstream newspapers, and, uh, and books, and uh, uh, political documents. But it's much harder to know what to do with things like social media. It's much more difficult to know what to do with the, not just the kinds of, should we just get what people say, or should, should we be looking at networks of interaction? Does that involve uh, uh, privacy violation issues? What do we do with dynamic sites, things like Wikipedia, that are in nonstop change? How do we capture that dynamic state? Those are the kinds of questions that very, you know, I think fortunately UNESCO is finally asking. The folks here represent um, a slightly different set of agendas for all dealing with, um, in one way or another, uh, uh, including for all uh, broadcast media. So I just want to quickly introduce them and get on. We'll use the format that was used. Um, we're missing a member, I should add, by the way. Um, uh, Jeremy John from uh, the British Library is ill and, and notified is pretty late in the game that he could not come. But that gives us a bit more time. So I think we'll deploy the um, strategy that was used for the first plenary, which is to say we'll have brief uh, presentations by each of the members, first half hour. Second half hour, open it up to some questions that will uh, hopefully provoke some um, debate. And for the third half hour, open it up to the floor. Uh, so that will be the format. Uh, without further ado, a quick set of introductions. Um, all the way at the end of the table, Claude Moussou, who's a project coordinator for the Web Legal Deposit at INA in France, uh, studied American studies and journalism, so welcome to an object of study. Uh, and she's a member of FIAT uh, Television Studies Commission. Um, next to Claude is Richard Wright, who's a preservation. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I should look. I should look. You guys switched on me. Um, Pele Snickers. Pele is a um, a media historian, film historian. Uh, his PhD is in film history, if I'm correct. But works across a whole gamut of uh, of media forms. Has a book about to come out on YouTube. We'll have to see if uh, a book that Gene Burgess is in will beat the book that Gene Burgess and Josh Green wrote to press. So which of these YouTube books will be out first? Uh, Pele is head of research at the Swedish National Libraries, and uh, that means he's head of research as well for the archive sector. And uh, then, sorry, next to me, I should look before I speak, is Richard Wright, preservation specialist for the BBC Archive. Uh, he's been very active. I mean, one great thing in Europe are the number of um, 
of projects that link researchers and uh, professionals. And Richard's been central in many of them. Euromedia, Presto, Presto Space, Birth of Television, Video Active. Um, and he's the author of the Presto Space Preservation Guide. Uh, works especially in acoustics, speech, and signal processing. An American from birth, lived in Britain for many, many decades. And um, his accent is somewhere in between. A technologist, uh, also from, uh, from origin and uh, in the right space here. So without further ado, Claude. So I want to, I want to say I, how happy I am to be here and somehow intimidated. And I want to thank the organizers for inviting me. Um, um, so um, I, my presentation here is entitled Memory and Heritage Policies in the Information Age. So I will briefly give a presentation of INA, which most of you, I'm sure, don't know what it is. It's the institution in France responsible for the preservation of the national radio and television heritage. Then I will have a focus on the legal deposit framework, which is um, shared by many European countries. And then I will uh, try and make a point of how uh, institutions should uh, keep authority over uh, cultural heritage in this era uh, that we might call Google era. So INA is a business-oriented and publicly funded institute which is responsible in France since it was created in 1974 for the collection, preservation, safeguarding and transmission of the uh, national radio and uh, television uh, heritage. Its um, daily expanding uh, collections amounts today to over 4 million hours of broadcast programs that start in 1949 for television and in the 1930s for the radio. Um, with its own funding and also with government fundings, in 1999, INA launched a preservation and digitization plan for analog endangered materials, that is about an estimated 835,000 hours. This plan will last until the year 2015 and when by then, all at-risk archives will have been preserved and digitized. Um, within, the f within the framework of the legal deposit, INA also uh, has been recording, recording online, live, in digital format, the programs of 100 radio and television channels since 2001. And the legal deposit collections are available on-site for only research and academic purposes. So I have a focus on that device that is uh, a European device and that was uh, a French invention actually. It was uh, King François Ier that uh, decided in a treaty signed in, on December 28th of the year 1537, it was called L'Ordonnance de Montpellier, that any book published would be deposited within the Royal Library before it was made available to the public. Uh, this was this had a control purpose, evidently, but also it was the aim was to constitute uh, royal national collections for the royal libraries. As time went by and, and technologies enabled new forms of knowledge production, well, the law was extended, as you see here, uh, to other types of documents. Uh, 
The aim of the regulation, of course, has been to collect, preserve, and provide the long-term access to something that, at least since the French Revolution, has been uh, addressed as national cultural heritage. So uh, the National Library in France was uh, naturally uh, the, the first repository for the legal deposit collection, as long the, as they were only print collection. And then uh, in 1977, the CNC, which is the Centre National de la Cinématographie, was designated uh, as responsible for legal, legal deposit for cinema, for motion pictures, because a curating film required specific technical apparatus. And then INA, which, are expert, which had expertise in the curation of broadcast material, was designated in 1992 for the legal deposit of radio and television, and then in, 90, in 2006, along with the National Library, for the legal deposit of websites. So why was it really necessary to extend this regulation to the web? The question is, why should institutions preserve web contents when it seems that it's all available online? Well, there are at least three good, good reasons. First, publishing and broadcasting activities, of course, have shifted online, and internet is an ever-expanding repository of information, some of which is nowhere else available. Um, if you consider the average size of a web page, Google reference pages would amount to about 200 million books. There's only th uh, 32 million books referenced in the Library of Congress, and only 13 million books referenced in the National French Library. Then there's the nature of the media, which is, in, is, in essence, fleeting and ephemeral. Online content is meant to be browsed, transformed, mashed up, swapped, but not preserved. And according to Bruce Tuchel, founder of the Internet Archive, which pioneered Internet archiving in 1996, the average, span, uh, the average lifespan of a web page is 44 to 75 days, and an estimated 44% of uh, the websites that existed in 1988 have disappeared without a trace within one year. And then also, of course, there's this social dimension of internet, which is a public sphere in its own, generating new and original forms of contents that need to be taken into account in heritage policies. 20, 50, 100 years from now, when scholars or academics will look for evidence and testimonies of what the 21st century was, of the cultural trends, historical events, debates that stirred society at the time, well, web archives will, will be, of course, a necessary and valuable source. So even if at first glance archiving the web might seem like a fool and difficult enterprise, not considering it as, as cultural heritage and its collection and preservation necessary would, in effect, turn libraries into uh, museums unable to update their collection with new items and sources. This uh, question of uh, comprehensively, uh, comprehensively and uh, properly collecting the internet is a shared concern by many countries and mostly national libraries in each one. Um, so many of them have been working on strategies, skills and tools and try to find tools and methods to uh, preserve, collect and preserve the web. In 2003, an international consortium, Internet International Preservation Consortium, was founded by a dozen institutions, mainly national libraries, 
with a commitment to collect and preserve a rich body, body of internet content from around the world, to foster the development and use of common tools, to encourage and support national libraries everywhere to address internet preservation. In 2007, the consortium was open to new member. Ina joined this year. Today, our IPC hosts 38 members, among which in the US, of course, the Library of Congress, the US Government Printing Office, the, the University of North Texas Libraries, California Digital Library, and of course, Internet Archive Foundation. So the purpose here is not to go into technical details, but I'll um, explain this diagram with a musical metaphor. So here, this is the web archiving process at INA. Uh, on the left-hand side is a prospector tool, that we've called it, that stores the, and updates the list of websites that need to be collected. This is like a musical score. On the right-hand side are the robots. The robots are like the musicians. They will be playing the music, crawling the live web, and in the middle, the scheduler, that is a conductor that beats the tempo and initiates the movement. So for each website, a dedicated robot reproduces all the possible browsing paths, activates each possible link within each page, so that copies of all items are stored. There, is, there are, of course, many technical challenges related to archive fidelity, coherence, and interpretability. One of the difficulties, of course, lies in the great variety of formats and software available on the web and their short life expectancy. Well, the challenge is to guarantee that many years from now, the user will be able to effectively browse the websites as they have been captured and activate every link within each archive website. And this is the last point I would like to, ma to make. Well, why should inst uh, institutions um, start this uh, digital collection when it seems that it's all available on online? Well, decentralized in structure, the web has become today, as Henry Porter wrote it in a column published in The Guardian on April 5th, the host of a small number of dangerous WWMs, worldwide monopolies, among which Google, of course, is the most prominent. These monopolies have spawned gigantic worldwide network of servers with tremendous uh, computing powers hosted in server farms in the so-called computing, cloud computing landscape. So on the one hand, it would not be fair not to admit how convenient and pleasant it is wherever you are to instantly access any needed information, thanks notably to the huge computing and storage capacities. On the other hand, it would not be wise not to consider the possible backlash of such monopolies. First, there certainly are possible technical flaws. Last January 31st, Google bug was like a warning. And since then, the company has tried to be reassuring, more transparent, as far as the issue of data center efficiency was concerned. However, with close to one million sim uh, connected servers distributed across 50 farms and submitted to dozen million simultaneous requests, well, of course, technical hazards are bound to happen, and even more so and more often as the technical architecture will continue to grow. Then, secondly, Google is only 11 years old. Uh, even if it seems that, as for now, better than other advertising-dependent companies, it has withstood recession, if, even if it seems that it's still willing to take high risk 
for high return. Um, for instance, YouTube still has a, hasn't found a sustainable business model and it's paying 51% of its operating budget for bandwidth. But anyway, the financial good health of such uh, companies is not especially, guaranteed, especially in the current troubled economy. So relying ex exclusively on Google for cultural heritage would be far too risky. It is well known that um, the, the, the main reason for the loss of silent movies was intentional destruction when talking movies replaced them. Robert Harris, one of the leading authorities in the film preservation, uh, testified, most of the early films did not survive because, the wholesale junking, because of the wholesale junking by the studios. There was no thought of ever saving these films. They simply needed vault space and the materials were expensive to house. So to sum up this demonstration, neither regarding permanent preservation and access, nor in terms of data protection and integrity are these new storage and access facilities a guarantee for cultural heritage. Search engines are not meant to be permanent archiving devices. Every day some websites are born, others die, some disappear according to the first-in, first-out logic, and cost and profits considerations do prevail in the management and storage of data. So in that context, there is a possible loss of control of the world's knowledge from national libraries and public archives to Google. And so public authority of memory and heritage is a core issue. Again, undeniably, private initiatives have played a major part in providing universal access to all knowledge and inventing new social territories. But one must also remember that were it not for centuries of long-term institutional heritage policies, market initiatives would not consider making profits out of digitized collections. So therefore, it is necessary that government and institutions do not surrender their role as gatekeepers to collective memory and heritage in this di digital era that we have entered. And as a conclusion, maybe because um, an image is worth a thousand words, as they say it, on the left-hand side, a scholar, my daughter namely, she is working on a 14th century manuscript, and all she needs is a pair of white gloves to hand, not to harm the manuscripts, and a pair of glasses to protect her eyes from the UV lamp. On the right-hand side is a scholar, maybe 100 years from now, trying to retrieve digital data. And uh, I was kind of appalled by uh, something I heard, some, a sentence I heard David Rosenthal say in a conference I attended last year. It says, he said, keeping one petabyte for one century with a 50% probabil probability of survival seems unachievable. I thank you for your attention. Hi, I'm delighted to be here as well. Um, I will make this very brief because as Bill was passing me over, small Bill, discussion is fun. So I will, this is, will be a very short presentation. Um, again, I'm from the National Library of Sweden. Um, the National Library has recently merged with the National Media Archive. 
So when I will be talking here about the library and the archive, it's, it's one organization, although they're still sort of separate in one way or the other. Um, even though Sweden is a small country, uh, the national media collections are um, quite large, actually. We, we're talking about some seven million hours of media material. And this is um, due to the fact that um, uh, the legal deposit law for audiovisual media was um, uh, um, put up already in the mid-70s. And it, it's uh, for every kind of media output on the Swedish market, not only the Swedish material, but, but basically anything that has been uh, put out on, on VHS, on radio, on television, or whatever. So it's a, it's a fairly big archive. And it's all other archives in this sector, uh, we're struggling with the transition from, uh, from analog to digital. And this is, um, um, well, this was also discussed, of course, yesterday. But I would stress one thing, and that's the, 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 um, the discourse around resources. Because I think that the, the, the basic thing here is, is when you move from the analog to the digital in this archival domain or the ALM sector, archive libraries and museums, is that you have a limited amount of, of funding, of budget, and you still need to keep the, the old stuff running, the old analog world running, but also trying to upgrade yourself to the new digital platform. And since institutions are slow in reorganizing themselves, this is quite a bit of a problem. Um, uh, however, the, the, uh, the National Media Archive back home, we have been uh, fairly successful in digitizing our contents. This was started already in the uh, late 90s. And this is actually a material which I wrote my own dissertation about, the earliest Swedish film history, to the, to the left. And then this was migrated into um, files, um, some 5,500 uh, files in the so-called Swedish Film uh, Industry Archive. Uh, so there's been this kind of experience in working with, with digital formats for, for quite some time now. And one might actually say that the digital has become more or less the default for the archive itself. Uh, this is, is in, in, um, in contrast, for example, to the Swedish Film Institute, which belongs to the more of the FIAF side, which is more of the, the analog guys. This is a, a media archive which has moved, or is, is now has moved into the digital domain as a kind of default value. Um, and basically, there are three types of influx of, of, of uh, digital material, one could argue. It's an on-demand from our researchers. Uh, it's the di digital deposits from a number of, of uh, broadcasters, TV stations, for instance. And there's also quite big migration project with, which has been set up uh, and is actually producing from analog VHS tapes. And this is mostly con uh, contains um, public service material from the 80s, some 2,700 hours a day in a robot that was built up. And this might not sound you know, that impressive if you compare it to the BBC or the ENA, but this, we have to bear in mind that this is a fairly small institution. So uh, even with the international standard, this has been quite successful. Um, uh, so again, the, uh, uh, the digital as a default, the screen as the kind of, of, um, of um, uh, interface for our researchers. Um, there has been this transition which has been fairly successful. But the problem is, is of course, IPRs. Um, the Swedish National Media Archive or the Swedish National Library is a separate institution from the public service broadcaster from the Swedish television, for instance. So there's basically no rights to the material. And for some time during the 80s and 90s, this was not a problem. But now when we move over to digital formats, this has become a, a huge problem because we can't really take advantage of the web and distributing the, the, the material to our researchers 
uh, or other people who are interested in material because of the rights issue. Um, and to some extent, uh, the material is locked or chained to the institution. And this is, of course, an issue which we com com will come back to in the discussion. But I think that uh, from a national perspective, but also from, an, from a European perspective, the, the, the issue around rights is, is, um, is very, very uh, critical. And um, of course, uh, the famous Pirate Bay trial, which has been going on in Stockholm now for a few months, hasn't made the situation easier, so to say, from a kind of ALM perspective. So we're working towards so kind, of, kind of backlash now in the binary, uh, binary landscape. Uh, challenges. Uh, Bill pointed out that we, what type of challenges do we face? Well, um, first one could say that there is the, the, the challenge of redundancy, of, of keeping the archive. There's a challenge of migration, of trying actually to uh, move all the analog formats into new digital formats, but we will actually make it, I think. And then, of course, there's the big issue around uh, long-time digital preservation, which, uh, um, well, all of us here are, are working on. Uh, but personally, I would also say that the, um, uh, there is also kind of interesting um, um, shift here if, if we talk more about the, 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 the holdings in general, not only about the audiovisual content, and talking about digitization activities uh, moving from more quality-based um, um, uh, methods to more quantity-based methods. And, and here again, I think Google is, is, uh, has, of course, uh, been driving this, this um, development. And there has, in fact, come out a, f a number of reports now recently from, uh, from the Library of Congress, from uh, uh, the Dutch Royal Library, where um, uh, digitization activities are moving from the kind of qualitative aspect to this more, more uh, quantity, because you, you have to get more uh, digital material out of your funding. Um, and also another issue here of preservation access is, of course, the um, uh, what are you actually doing when you're digitizing? This is also something which we discuss a lot back home. Uh, are the initiatives done uh, primarily in direction of preserving material which is deteriorating, which is, for instance, the fact with the VHS tapes from the 80s, or is it primarily an access uh, model which is being deployed on the, the strategies? And I think this is also has to do with a better understanding of what the digital actually is in a kind of archival setting. Uh, and again, access, and sometimes I talk about the 95-5 rule or pattern is that if you look at how the collections are used in a normal analog archive, a media archive, you would say that basically 5% uh, of the material will be used. Um, you know, there, we have these figures. Uh, if you look at the, how, how material is used on the web, take, take YouTube, of course, as the, as the big um, reference point here, you will get the other opposite user pattern. You'll get 95% of material used and 5% which is perhaps not clicked at at all. And I think that this online access in terms of, of developing the archive and as, and as a big challenge for the ALM sector is that it is actually um, uh, new archival user patterns are occurring, which are also fundamentally changing the way that, that institutional archives need to think about themselves. And again, uh, pointing to the book that we are making at the moment, which will address these archival issues quite a lot, the YouTube reader. Uh, the more, the merrier, as they say, with a number of books. Uh, finally, uh, some slides here about the kind of general trend around the, um, what I would say, the absentness of the ALM sector within the general new media landscape. Um, recently, I did, made a visit at the Bavarian State Library, uh, who's one of the Google partners in Europe. And they were talking a lot about uh, this um, 
um, um, joint venture with Google as a way of entering this new sector on the web, making the archives or, and the libraries present in this new type of content flux that we're seeing. And I think this is quite important. And this is also a topic that's been, been uh, brought up uh, back home in Scandinavia. So we raise, we, we, if we don't look at these um, types of new sites, we risk the, run the, runs the risk of, of this kind of empty archives, which this illustration here from Flickr states. And one, one could also ask oneself what the role of the archive is in this new type of, of um, world that we're facing, the worldwide computer, to borrow Nicholas Carr's phrase, which I think is, is quite, quite good. Um, again, the flick of the comments, there are, of course, these initiatives that, that you can hook up to. But um, um, I was going to say something about the cloud computing trend also, but I think I'll stop there. Thanks. Sorry, I'm, I'm stuck in an institution that's devoted to um, Microsoft products. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm Apple illiterate, uh, which is a very unfortunate thing to uh, confess to an, an academic audience. Um, very quickly, I want to say some things about the BBC's problem and what we're doing about it, but I want to then uh, get back to uh, Stone and Papyrus and the overall issue is, are things getting better or are things getting worse? Uh, and what is the real situation about media and preservation um, since Stone. That's some of the BBC archive. We've got 100 kilometers of shelves. It's an audiovisual archive. Um, you've heard of the BBC. Um, it's unusual for me to stand uh, with speakers and say I've got a small archive, or uh, sorry, I'm, I'm part of a small archive. We only, have, we only have a million hours. Ina has four and Sweden has seven, but then Sweden has legal deposit, as you know, and, and Ina has a, uh, a different um, situation also. This is a million hours of the BBC's output going back to, well, a trickle to the 1920s, but uh, considerable amounts of audio from the 1930s onward, film of television from the 1930s onward, and then videotape from uh, around about 1960 and other formats. Uh, it all has to be digitized and put into files. And, and I say that absolutely across the board, including the film, because we don't keep film as film, uh, or we don't intend to, because we don't use film as film. Um, we don't send reels of film um, out through the air. We send video signals, and so film is only a storage format in television, although because it was the only storage format from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, well, up, up till about 1960, and we still used film as a storage because it was cheaper than videotape right through the 60s, we have about 300,000 hours of film um, among that 650,000 hours of video, well, 250,000 hours of film. So it all has to be digitized in order for it to be preserved. And then what else we do with it um, is, is an issue, but we will say goodbye to all that, definitely. Um, in digital production, because we're not an archive, we're an actual company, there's 
what's called the shoot-to-show ratio, and so we'll be making in draft form, or what is still called rushes, a lot more video than would end up in the archive. So raw material in petabytes per week, but that gets weeded out, and um, because you know we have eight television outputs, and we have local opt-outs, and we have all the radio channels, so that's a lot of hours per week that we produce, and that's why it ends up as being 200 terabytes per week. I'm not trying to impress you with numbers. I'm trying to say that for broadcasting, the commitment to digital is enormous. We're putting a very big egg in that basket, and that basket is not a perfect basket. Um, I've been an engineer for a very long time, and what keeps engineers in business is the fact that technology doesn't really work. It doesn't quite work, and it doesn't work perfectly. And you need engineers around to get, to get it to work as best as it can, and, and then to move on to something better, which is a continuous process. So um, you don't stick things in storage and walk away. Uh, and if you do, you're in real trouble. Um, you can see what, what this says. The risk of loss gets higher and higher as the amount that you're putting in this basket goes up, and the amount we're putting in this basket is getting very, very big. Coming back to Ann Walpert yesterday saying she's more worried about her grandchildren swimming in a sea of digital photos than she is about her grandfather's few and rare photos from 100 years ago that she um, can deal with perfectly well. Um, it's this risk growing by Moore's law, basically. Um, plus all the other things that lead to risk uh, about the whole IT infrastructure and how imperfect it is. And, and we've had the quote about keeping a petabyte. Um, in broadcasting, we've been dealing with um, a lot of really shaky technology for decades. Uh, a videotape recorder never works perfectly. And in fact, uh, you get frame instabilities and frame dropouts and lime dropouts all the time. Uh, and, and you have this on, on, on Walkman CD players and, and, and every kind of a device. The point of the technology is to cope with that loss, and that's what I don't see um, in current approaches to IT. So the storage gets cheap, and then we use a lot of it, and that's why Ann Wolpert's grandchildren are swimming in a sea of digital pictures. Um, what can you do about loss once it occurs? When all the clever error protection and correction fails and you have the message, you know, there was a problem with this document. <laughs> For audiovisual content in its millions of hours put into digital mass storage, we have to have something beyond this. We have to get behind the error message and pull something back, and because audiovisual content is so structured, there's a lot of something that could be pulled back. Um, one way is to make sure you haven't um, compressed the material. And in fact, you haven't even losslessly <laughs> compressed the material. Uh, this just shows on the left a, a BMP file, um, on the right a BMP file with a whole lot of errors, and they appear as little dots because there's no um, in, uh, an error in one part of the file doesn't uh, correlate with any other part of the file, whereas in a GIF file that's got algorithms processing those bytes in the file and those bits in the file, um, three errors propagates across the whole file and produces the result that you see in front of you. So if you, give, if you keep clean, structured, um, highly redundant data, 
rather than taking all the redundancy out of it, you can mitigate against a, a certain kind of loss. And this is what we've been doing in analog engineering for decades, having a time-based corrector. So when you lose a line, um, you grab the adjacent line, put it back in, make a full frame, and carry on. Uh, we just don't have that in the, in the digital world, and that's what I would like to see. I want to close with this slide and coming back to why the problem is getting worse or maybe getting better and what can be done about it. Um, because I asked myself yesterday, why is Anne Wolpert able to be more confident about her grandfather's photos than her grandchildren's photos? And I, um, these are my numbers um, done as I sat there. So I can't cite references to the bits per square centimeter of stone and paper, but um, I could give you my hand-waving argument for all of these things. You could probably get a, a character in a millimeter, so 10 to the fourth, um, 10 to the third characters, 10 to the fourth bits for paper. Um, film, 10 to the seventh, that's quite defensible. Uh, you know, an image, a nice clean image can go on a centimeter, square centimeter. And this figure for disk is the kind of figure that, uh, well, what do you mean by disk and which technology? Because it's growing by Moore's law. But around about the year 2000, you would have that kind of figure for storage densities for magnetic media per square centimeter. What we see is it gets a 1,000 times more dense for these changes in media, and it lasts one-tenth as long. Um, and I'm saying because it gets a thousand times more dense, it also gets roughly a thousand times cheaper. And that's why um, these grandchildren are swimming in their sea of digital photos, because they're a thousand times cheaper. And instead of taking the same number of photos and having a much, much smaller problem in uh, preserving them, because it would be very cheap to make, say, a hundred copies of each, we don't. Because they're a thousand times cheaper, we take a thousand times more. And, and as you know, you can go off on holiday and now come back with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of photos um, in, instead of a, a much smaller number in the past. But because they're cheaper, um, if there weren't so many more of them, you, you can move them on and you can migrate them 10 times and they're 100 times cheap, 1,000 times cheaper, you could migrate them 10 times and you could still save them for a century um, for much less than saving film, except that um, you need the metadata. And the metadata, if it has to be put on by hand, if you've got a thousand times as many photos that you have to put on by hand, then you've got a thousand times bigger problem. And if you have to do it 10 times for a century, then the storage problem is 10,000 times bigger with digital photos than it was with analog. And, and that's our reality. So I think the problem is bigger. I've got numbers. It's 10,000 times bigger unless you can automate. So the BBC has had heavy automation of its migration processes. Nobody competes with the Swedish archive in heavy automation of their migration processes. Uh, if you can get the metadata automatically, if, if, if you, know, you get the time and the place from when the camera is shot and maybe a quick audio annotation, then that will work. And that's what's going to survive. And the things that can't be automated um, are going to be in there struggling for survival and, and having a very hard time. OK, thank you. <clears throat> Okay, terrific. Um, I think we'll have, because these presentations actually covered some of the questions um, that I was going to raise, 
we'll have an abbreviated question session and then open it up uh, to the floor. And um, actually, I'd like to begin just uh, by picking up on, on something that came up um, in very different ways uh, between Claude and, 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 and Pelley's, actually in all three papers. Are there lessons to be learned for, for a generation of future archivists from what Claude called worldwide monopolies, such as, uh, such as Google, or from applications like Facebook, YouTube? Are there lessons to be learned? Um, and if so, are they cautionary tales? Are they inspirations? Or are they experiments that require closer monitoring? What's your, what's your sense of uh, what's to be gained from these commercial applications that are so robust and so large? Just um, sure. Of, of course, there, there are th things to be gained. I mean, the, uh, take the, uh, the the issue around social tagging, for instance. Uh, we've been trying to, to pursue a project with the what I briefly mentioned, this um, Swedish film industry's um, uh, newsreel archive, which is dating them from from the 18, 1896 until the 1960s. That was something that you should put out on the web because the metadata around that project is is not that great. Actually, it was cataloged in the 60s and. Um, uh, and I think that because of, of the material, it contains a lot of, of, of local material, you know, s small film shots in, in, in uh, small Swedish towns in the 30s, you would still have a p number of people who, who would eventually know what this is. But uh, since, um, and, and if, if I would have to, to decide about that, we would have done this because it's, it, it was digitized in, in, the, in the late 90s. But because, again, of rights, this has not been the been an, um, 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 we, have, we haven't accomplished that, but I think definitely that there you could have a, a way of, of improving your metadata by putting this stuff out on the web. Definitely, and this is also, of course, the underlying principle of, of say, Flickr Commons. That, that's how they are, are are sort of selling this to institutions that you can actually upgrade your own collections in one way or the other. Of course, you will get some kind of of um, uh, metadata, which is uh, uh, not really accurate, but you will have to have some kind of ways to, to sort of figure out what you will uh, need to keep, and what will be, be making your collections better, and what we, you would take away. But I'm, I'm definitely a strong, strong, um, um, I, I would want to do that, yeah. Some institutions, I think, have done it. The Steve Museum in the United States, they have an online social tagging possibilities for works of that that need uh, are lacking information. I think the BBC has done it also for audio clips. We <laughs> so, some trials. So uh, uh, this is a great opportunity for archivists to, to, to try and move on. Of course, metadata uh, producing is, is not in the hand of archivists only anymore, any longer. Uh, and I think this is kind of an um, opportunity for them. Are they willing to give up their uh, skills as heirs of uh, Aristotle or Dewey's, you know, to organize their uh, collections. This is not so sure, but uh, I think it's an opportunity as well. Mm. But one should perhaps state also that, that if we are the more liberal side from archives, you, inside these institutions you would have also have a number of people who are sort of against this. That, that, yeah, sure. Yeah. So there is this, it's, it's about the, 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 you know, the profession of the archivists, that we know how to catalog and they don't. And, and so it's, 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 not an easy, um, it's not an easy thing, actually. Well, actually, let me just sharpen and drill down on that point a little bit. Because if we look at the so-called Web 2.0 transformation, the turn towards participatory culture in media production, with lots of people producing their own bits, places like archives, uh, libraries, universities, are 
a little more bound in tradition and remain kind of bastions of centrality. Um, there are signs of change, of course. But where do you think, it, like if you were just to think in the future a bit, do you see a space for, I mean, obviously tagging is one, do you see a more robust space for bottom-up uh, engagements with the archival project? That is to say, for example, a thing like Loxis, where you can distribute, actually distribute where the data is held, and, and using redundancy as a fix for the, the kinds of impermanence that, that you mentioned. A lot more redundancy might be a way to compensate for the, the time trade-off. Uh, if you were to distribute that, maybe grid computing would be an example. Uh, tagging would be another. Do you see a future for greater distribution and bottom-up engagements with the archive and maybe even archival practices? Or will the archive, is it better for that sort of practice to say centralized, stable, fixed, or some other scenario? <laughs> Any, any of you, yeah, please. Well, could I say something yeah. first? Um, sure. Because the BBC archive isn't an archive. It's a part of the BBC. So we have a, a different issue. Um, there's the unique method of funding, as it's always called in the, BBC, in, in the UK, which means uh, if you don't pay your license fee, you can be sent to jail, which <laughs> gives us uh, funding f directly from the people. And the content of the archive has been funded by that money. So it belongs to the populace of the UK that pay their license fees. It's their content. And the BBC has, has said this uh, directly uh, again and again. And our whole campaign for the next decade would be to get archive content on the web, freely available to the people, to absolutely the greatest extent possible. Mm. Whether they would help indexing or not is, a, for us, a separate issue. Well, this issue has been addressed by Ina as well, because Ina is, as I said, a partly funded institute that is two-thirds of the income come from the license fee. So when the digitization plan was launched, it was evident that as uh, we owed this to taxpayers as well, we owed it to put it online available for all, uh, all taxpayers. So um, actually six months before YouTube was bought by uh, Google, in April 2006, we uh, launched a website with about 100,000 items available online for anyone for viewings. Uh, the rights had been cleared and, and uh, contract and agreements made with copyright holders. And uh, today, this on-site, uh, it's called ina.fr, is very successful. There's one million uh, viewers per month. This is France quite a lot. And uh, we are launching a new website with more um, uh, particip participation from the viewer in June. Mm. But social tagging is not, uh, I think, an issue right now. Okay. Okay. But, but, but I think also that the, the um, um, at least for me, this, 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 there is a real challenge in, the, in terms of that the, in, in the ALM sector, and, and I'm more, more here more talking about cultural heritage institutions rather than public broadcasters, need to upgrade themselves because there is this competition, of course, that um, uh, you have a number of sites with um, images, moving images, which are, are freely available, which, which people can use, and you will use them. Uh, if, if, if the um, alternative is an archive which is closed. And I think, I mean, take the, take the number of projects which you were addressing in the, in the beginning, in, in Europe, Europeana, for instance, uh, Video Acta, which my archive is part of as, as well, which is also, you know, it's basically one big battle of rights. Um, Video Active is a project on, on a comparative site on European TV history. But uh, since um, everyone can't put out the material that they want, it becomes a kind of distorted history. 
Uh, and the real material, or what you would like to put out, would, you would find that on YouTube. So there is also this way of, of, of negotiating, and I, I, I sometimes have the feeling that, that if these um, issues aren't really dealt with on a, on a high level, that is, at the Commission, uh, you run the risk of be, that these archival institutions are being, being um, you know, they're, they're being put to, the, put to the side because there are other forces taking over. Um, which is, in, in the long run, then you will have get, get lesser funding, etc. because I think that um, access is driving funding in these ways. And in a certain way, it's ironic, especially in Europe, that this is happening, because most nations work on a license-based system. Yeah. So the argument for the, of the BBC that this belongs, to, paid for by the people, belongs to the people, you would think would mitigate the rights issue a bit, but it seems, of course, not to. No, but there, there is, for instance, take, take the issue of orphan works, which has been up, and it's not only about the audiovisual sector. The, the, what I've heard in, in the commission is now that if, if to put, put, put an orphan work out in the Europeana portal, you will have to ask and, and answer 13 questions in terms of, of who has this and this and this. And it's, you know, states from, from, from the beginning that this won't work. So if you sort of put this into the, the, um, um, the, the machinery or the law, it will become sort of um, twisted. And that's a, that's a big, big problem, actually. Um, if folks have questions, you can start coming up to the mics. Um, I have like one more maybe, or maybe two. But one of them is the issue, um, Richard, that you brought up, which is about redundancy. And so what do you do with a big collection of films? You don't broadcast them. They're taking up shelf space. They're moldering. They take a lot of attention. Can you digitize them? And we know that with Moore's Law in place, and we know that with you know, the, our, our kind of uh, teleological worldview where things just keep getting better and better, we could stop now and digitize that stuff and throw away the, the acetate or the nitrate because we've got pretty good technology. But if we extrapolate ahead a little bit and Moore's Law still holds, we know that we're going to have far more robust and presumably far cheaper systems somewhere in the future. The debate today in film archives over 2K or 4K um, uh, preservation 20 years from now is going to seem absurd. I mean, it's going to seem like those computers we had uh, 15 years ago. So I'm just wondering, what, what are your institutional policies on redundancy, on keeping uh, stone <laughs> in an era of uh, papyrus? Well, first of all, the, the LOX project, lots of copies keep stuff safe, says you really need six copies before you can go to sleep at night. And, and the BBC has struggled and struggled endlessly ever since the archive was founded to get two master copies. Uh, we finally succeeded in getting that as policy in the 1990s. Um, and as five years after we uh, succeeded, um, they went to a different method of transmission where instead of having the master copy and the backup master copy in the transmission suite, the master copy was put into a digital playout system, a server-based playout system, and the videotape was kept as the backup, and so production stopped making two master copies, and we went a step backwards. Uh, in our archiving, we make two master copies now, and in when we, because we've outsourced our IT to a company, Siemens, we hope that they will make at least two masters on two technologies in two places, but they're saying they can't afford to do that. And secretly, this is a big secret, we're keeping a copy in the archives. So th there will be many, uh, probably three copies of the digital files that we're making, and that's about the best that we can afford, we think. Other? We, we, we handle redundancy also. We also have two masters copy, and one is for uh, reuse for the, the um, you know, broadcasters uh, for publishing, and one is for viewing only, and it's 
downgraded for viewing. And we also have this plan we are, that we're starting now at INA to not to outsource the storage, but to have somewhere else the, the storage will be uh, duplicated. At INA, it's called the petasite, and then it will be duplicated somewhere else in the, in the area, Paris area, in another building. The same goes in Stockholm, although I should perhaps also add that, that uh, the, 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 the migration project that we're running, is nothing is, is the, the old cassettes are not thrown away, they're just stored again in the archive. Um, and, um, um, yeah. The, the, one, one great solution, um, uh, the Danish solution, at least the Danish film archive, uh, I think they freeze, they freeze the, the film. Oh, the film. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And, um, We'll worry about it another couple hundred years. Well, for, if you want to see a comprehensive plan, it's called Preserve Then Show, and they have a 400-year plan for their assets, which is uh, Terrific. well worth reading. Preserve and Show. Good. Well, Rick, I see you're at the microphone, so ask away. Um, this is one of these fascinating sort of uh, forks that, that happen when you talk about archives in, in Europe and in the States. Uh, in Europe, you're building giant public works. Um, that we'll probably never be able to build in the States. You're building pyramids while we have, you know, little bumps in the ground. Our archival ecology is, is much more decentralized, and it's increasingly, you know, as I said yesterday, I think there's starting to be an increased emphasis on informal, uh, personal repositories that may be that may be fan-based, that don't save material and master quality, but quite often they step in and, and uh, and, and add survival and add context where it doesn't happen elsewhere. Um, I mean, it makes me wonder, uh, how are you going to be able to relate institutionally to the large number of informal collections that are likely to arise and are arising in Europe? And how are we in the States going to figure out a coordinated strategy, which we've really failed at doing despite all our media preservation plans to make sure that there is, you know, uh, there are at least a few reasonably authoritative repositories of, of public memory. I see this diverging in an age of, of convergence. I mean, part of this is also different philosophies of culture. You know, when you get money from a ministry of culture, you can't collect illegally. There's lots of things that you cannot uh, do, but on the other hand, what you see is uh, that, that that in Europe, with these official repositories and digitization projects that um, that observe rights strictly, that then you have outright defiance, so that you have the pirate community saying we are the archive, and it's a very uh, um, I, I don't know where it's going to end up. It seems like a big gap. Yeah, it, it is a big gap, definitely, and I, I totally agree. Actually, that that it's it's sort of seems to be going in various directions. And especially if you, if you would address the, um, um, the web and, and the, the legal deposit for the web. This is now being negotiated back home. It's been, well, you have it in France, and it's, that seems to me to be the very tricky part of how to um, move over a legal deposit law that has been, what, in Sweden it's been around since 1661 for prints, and now tr trying to expand that into the web sector. But what, what are we actually going to keep? And, and we were talking about that before here, that, that you know, all, all types of web archive is very, very superficial. It's, it's just on the surface. So you basically get a representation. And, um, uh, and then there is, of course, the, the, apart from the technological problem, there is also the conceptual problem. You know, when is web-based television, for instance, et cetera. So, 
Um, I think that, that when, when one moves over to the, from a kind of institutional perspective towards the web, one needs to be uh, having an, a totally other principle of how you are organizing your archive. Um, but I'm not sure how you've done that. Uh, and at INA, we're trying to be like a one-stop shop for, uh, for uh, French-speaking uh, archives, but not only. We, we're really helping archives that don't have the money to migrate and, and be digitized. For instance, uh, we have uh, collected anything that could be uh, collected in Afghanistan, in the, the in Afghan, Afghan television, and we have digitized this. We have given a digitized copy, and we make it available for um, any, anyone who wants to use it. And we are very active in this kind of uh, these kinds of operation, trying to to participate in the digitization of, of mm, you know poorer collections in poorer countries and make them available like in a one one stop shop. Um, speaking for the BBC, I would be very worried if there were only these large. Um, um, highly institutionalized collections. There was a very thorough study of audiovisual collections in Europe uh, organized by a project called TAPE, Training for Audiovisual Preservation in Europe. They s got responses, detailed responses from 400 collections. And uh, you know, this is uh, like the long tail and anybody else's uh, when you get statistics from a large number. There's a few big ones and then there's lots of small ones. 30% of the content was in broadcast archives, 30% of the content was in, in big national institutions, and 40% of the content was in this miscellany. So they're more important than we are, really. Um, and if that were ever not true, then we'd be in real trouble. I was just imagining what um, Fox News would say if, if we said, you know, seven million hours in your institution and four million in yours and one million in ours, and they'd say, well, there's where your tax dollar goes under socialism. Um, uh, but the, the small ones can have their own unique funding mechanisms and, and their survival is probably, institutions can fall over and governments can change and, and it may be that the small ones out there in their huge diversity, uh, they're certainly precious, absolutely precious. And just to say a, a word on the Dutch scene, um, a number of the small ones, if they have been institutionally organized, the eight millimeter collectors, home movie collectors, a number of those have been, in a certain sense, folded in. I mean, they sort of have semi-autonomy, but folded into the national archival system. Um, but of course, in a, in a mo cultural moment where very different kinds of collecting are now taking place, that, that obviously has not yet been addressed. And um, I think there's been a, in terms, I mean, there's a de jure and de facto practice. De jure, they're very careful about rights. De facto, there's a kind of uh, willingness to preserve and let's wait and see, um, at least with some of those, those smaller collections. Another question. Hi, I'm coming from a perspective of a researcher and having done research in the area of musicology and some of the arts. And I just, this is something that comes to mind as I go to do research of my own and we study uh, the official documents. We study that we see images of actual compositions and we bring them into a public sector and we talk about them, we write papers about them and every once in a while somebody starts saying, you know, it seems like we're kind of starting to get away from the meaning of this as we keep revisiting these works and keep writing about them and keep, you know, bringing them into that, that discourse. And that's not something I necessarily agree with, but it's a question that kind of comes up and it's I guess could be kind of a naive question, but it's one that I'd love to hear as you as who are archivists and working in archival in 
the area of archiving, I'm curious to know what do you see as the purpose of archiving all of these works and or archiving what you're archiving? I mean, just it's just one of those questions that, you know, kind of stepping back and saying, you know, why, what is our mission statement behind taking all that's there and putting it in a public, in public sector? I actually have friends who are bloggers who said, you know, I'm starting to see that my life is being archived through my blog, so I've just started lying more. And I'm also having an existential moment myself here being on tape, so I'm just going to take a picture of that. But um, thank you. And so uh, that's why I'm just kind of curious to hear from you guys uh, why and what kind of what's your mission statement behind what you do. Like, I, it's, a, it's a good question. I have to ask, ask it myself. Um, I mean, the, the simple answer is, of course, that, that the, 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 the institution that I represent back home is, is based on, on two things. On the one hand, it's supposed to be a cultural heritage institution that is going to collect the stuff for future generations. That is also what it says in the description that we get from the government what we're going to do. And on the other hand, it's a research archive. So we will provide access to this material uh, over time to researchers. Um, and, um, um, well... I think that the, the, uh, the, one, of the, one of the difficulties is now in, in the, in the tran transition phase from the analog to the digital is that still the, what, is going, what is being kept in, in, on the analog side is still very much, you know, that's, it's, you have a long tradition, you have the, uh, uh, what, the, 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 um, the German uh, um, uh, publication uh, um, lists from the city of um, um, Cologne or whatever that we've been having since 1887, of course we will continue with that publication list and we're not doing anything about trying to, to save the, the um, uh, Swedish output on YouTube, for instance. So there's this very sort of, um, um, and it's also hard to change that. Institutions are, are, are big and they're kind of hard to, to move around. and. Uh, and then, then there, of course, there's also this kind of the legal pattern that rounds everything around it. But it is, um, it's tricky. It's not an answer, really, but. Um, well, I have to say that the legal deposit framework is very clear. It's, the aim is both, it's to make uh, national collections and then to make them available for research and study purposes. That's the aim of the legal deposit. So uh, all research work that are produced on the material, from the material that is uh, within the legal deposit, of course, gives meaning to the material and the vari variety of point of views and all this uh, certainly is an asset. Um, for the BBC, the heritage um, aspect doesn't pay the bills at all. It's, it's a working archive in a working broadcaster and the only thing that keeps it going at, at the size it is, is the reuse value of the content. Um, so that the fact that 30% of the evening news every night comes from the archive and, 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 and a whole bunch of other statistics that we push 2,000 videotapes on a rusty van out of our archive down at Windmill Road every day to seven or 800 inquirers that want to see what's been made and want to get footage and want to get audio to, to make new output. That's, that's what keeps it going. Uh, there's a heritage department in the BBC. It's got a staff of two. And the archive has a staff of 420, down from 500 before the last set of cuts. So it's the, it's the value of the material itself. And we've only released a, a, a tiny bit of that because it's been the value of the material to the BBC. When we can get it on the web and release it to the general public, then, then we really release its value. But it's the reuse value. 
So as the digital transformation of archives occurs, media archives occurs, um, I mean, a number of you have suggested different, different challenges and, and also opportunities. I wonder if I could just press you a bit to, to sort of to name what you think the top challenge and the top opportunity is. Is this stuff emerging from the technological sector? Is it something having to do, as uh, Pele suggested, with the intellectual property, with the legal uh, constraints? Maybe something having to do with the uh, epistemology or even ontology of, of what is a media object. Uh, where do you see the, you know, as we watch, um, at least in this country, Obama with the, working with the economy, it's a burden, but it's also an opportunity to sort of make things happen quickly. It's a great excuse. And um, at least it's a great excuse at our university to make things happen quickly. Um, so it's, yeah, opportunity and a challenge. What do you see those as in this, in this phase? I mean, you're all seasoned archivists, so what's happening? So the two main challenge, I guess, for Ina is the uh, preservation of born digital material. This is a, a core issue. And uh, access, of course, is, uh, is another, because we already give access, but I think as I don't know. Someone said before, uh, this is a virtual. There is a virtual, virtu virtual circle to the migration policy. The more it is digitized, the more it is accessible. Well, the more it is visible, and the more it is visible, the more you get fundings for your migration policies. So access, I would say, and the preservation of digital born material are the two main challenges. Mm -hmm. I, I, I just because I. I was the one bringing up access. Oh, uh, <laughs> no, I, think, I, think, I think that's, that's extremely, but, but that's also from, from because my institutions are, are facing that, that we don't have any rights to the material at all and we're sort of now um, um, driven into a corner where we have this, all these developments are out on the web and we have what, uh, three million media files who are accessible uh, through our own system, but you can't, can only use them at a certain address in Stockholm which is you know, ridiculous. Uh, and, but I, who work there, I can access the material here, of course, so if I have a fast connection. So there's this kind of uh, strangeness in the system. And, and we are trying to uh, persuade politicians to sort of try to raise this issue, because it is a big issue, actually. But that's a legal issue, or it's, a it's a legal policy issue. issue? It's a legal issue. issue. Yeah. And, but the, the, what I see as, a, as a, um, um, something which is positive here is, is that this is also becoming now an issue on the... Um, in the EU with the Europeana, because the Europeana is also facing these problems with uh, getting uh, access to the material and rights. Um, and I should also say, but state back home that since we have now merged with the National Library, which is a more fancier institution, the, the relations now to the various copyright holders are much better than before. So, so I'm a bit positive. Oh. Well, I also wanted I, I also wanted to mention access. Uh, <clears throat> there's um, two issues. One is just this finding your way around the sheer size of things. Um, how do you find your way in a million hours? And I know that YouTube is much bigger than a million hours, but I can't even find my own things on YouTube sometimes <laughs> um, because the indexing is hard to use and I can't remember what it was that I indexed it under and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this sheer issue of navigation um, by subject, semantic navigation of millions of hours. That's a problem. We have um, metadata. We have extremely good metadata in the BBC. It was done by professional librarians for professional film researchers. Uh, and basically the kind of people that memorize Dewey numbers, except we use the, the European alternative. And, and those people are, are, can search very, very well. The challenge is for us to get that content with its 
hierarchy of uh, indexing accessible to the general public and accessible through whatever is going to be developed by Web 2.0 in the way of semantic retrieval. Um, it, Maura Messenger Davis, University of Ulster, and we were talking earlier about the difference between BBC archives and the archives of commercial corporations who, who produce television. Um, and it occurs to me that the BBC, of course, does transmit a great deal of American material, um, imported material from other corporate commercial um, sources, as, as do other European national broadcasters. Is that material going into your archive? In other words, are you archiving the whole schedule or are you archiving just the stuff that you produce? And what are the rights um, implications of that? I mean, in terms of not having very effective archives in the United States, can American scholars go and look up American programs that have been broadcast on the BBC? Um, the short answer is no. <laughs> we don't keep it and, and you can't Surprise. find it because it's not BBC material and so it, it wasn't kept. And what about uh, in France, the answer is yes, because <laughs> within the legal deposit framework, well, only French produced material is submitted to legal deposit, but we have this on around the clock digital um, recording for because it was less expensive than selecting. And so everything that is being broadcast on any channel of the 100 channels submitted to legal deposit is available only for research and study purposes. And the same goes with Sweden as well. Great. It's so the same kind of principle. So it's we'll come over then. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Okay, another question. Thank you. Thomas Pettit, University of Southern Denmark. Uh, I was thinking yesterday that, that the question of quality should be raised more emphatically. Uh, the extraordinary amount of rubbish that's being, much effort is being used to preserve in, in, in these archives. Uh, I've come today to regret that because in response to the question that was posed, the, the very strong question about just, just how, what are we doing preserving all this material, uh, today I think you can do nothing more but blindly record everything and preserve everything, not thinking about whether it's good or bad or what its use may be, because I've just remembered, was it in 16... I'm, I'm the one who always mentions Shakespeare in these... Uh, these assemblies. I think it's 1615. In 1615, Thomas Bodley founded his uh, famous library in Oxford, uh, and as you may recall, in his instructions to the uh, people who are running the, the Bodleian uh, in Oxford, uh, he said, "We do not wish. I do not wish stage plays, uh, the texts of stage plays by people like Marlowe and Shakespeare and Johnson. I don't want them in my library." Uh, and, well, time showed that that may have not have been the best uh, policy statement for a, uh, uh, an archive. So I'm hoping very much that you, you will not make such decisions because in 400 years people may curse you uh, <laughs> for leaving out things that then we, we feel are, will be felt necessary. Thank you. And this is the quandary of quality, right? I mean, what we recognize as quality today is not necessarily what will appear so tomorrow. Um, Marlene, one last, yeah. This fell off. Is it working? Yeah. Even though it's not attached, yeah. Um, I want to get back to the question that we just heard earlier and in another um, plenary about why bother to save anything and the way this always seems to come down to a, a sort of all or nothing. And I sort of like uh, Lisa Gittleman's formulation. I don't know if she's still here. But in her always already knew, she says, 
what is cultures. Cultures are, cultures save stuff. In other words, in order to have a culture, you need to have a history. Without history, you don't have a culture. So though we can debate what it is we should save or what we need to save, um, if, if culture is to continue, clearly something needs to be saved. And I guess um, the tendency to save more because we don't know what to save um, is obviously an issue. But, but I also think there are some parallels with um, the environmental movement and what it is we're leaving our grandchildren, just like Ann Wolpert is worried about her grandchildren, or um, the uh, deficit, you know, what we're leaving our grandchildren. And so when we're thinking about what to save, maybe we need to think about it in those, in those same terms. And perhaps we need to save more rather than less simply because we don't know what it is that our grandchildren are going to want. Well, Sweden's already saving everything that's broadcast, and, and Ina's saving nearly everything that's broadcast. <laughs> BBC doesn't save non-BBC material because we're not a national institution. We're just the BBC, but there are other national institutions in the UK that are meant to fill the gap. I think the prospect of uh, somebody saving broadcast material from here onward uh, only gets better, uh, especially uh, 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 with the uh, number of um, transmission methods, so things that go out broadcast also go out over the internet and have multiple avenues for being captured. Um, uh, the, the losses of the 20th century, which are enormous, um, 70 to 90 percent of film, et cetera, et cetera, um, I don't see that as the issue for the 21st century, but finding it and labeling it and valuing it, those, those remain difficult. No, sure, but, but I would also stress that, that even though working in a, in a library or an archive, that one shouldn't be so afraid of the, um, of, of the loss of culture that your bits and pieces are actually not saved. I mean, this has been, been the case all, all along. Um, writing myself a dissertation about the, the media landscape around 1900 and the mass culture around that period, you know, basically everything is lost. It's, it's, there's just gaps and gaps. So, so that's, that's also, that it's also the par part of a culture, that these gaps in the archives, so to say. So, um, but again, I think that, that you're absolutely right, Richard, that, that in, in the, from now on and onwards, the problem will be rather to find stuff in this uh, um, gigantic ocean of material. Yeah, I guess uh, within the legal deposit framework, there's this exhaustivity uh, criteria, which has to be given up in the all digital uh, context, because of course we can't uh, um, collect and preserve all websites. So it has to be, this exhaustivity criteria has to be given up, and obviously we have to make a selection uh, on which criteria, which, well, this is not clear yet. Well, as for you know, it is all websites that are related to the broadcasting industry, economy, or whatever, entertainment industry. But uh, certainly there will be loss. And I agree, too, that the access and uh, metadata is the key now. Metadata is the key. Fitting closing <laughs> words for this uh, session. <laughs> Let me just make a quick announcement before thanking our panel. I believe, Brad, I don't see you here, but I believe we've um, requested a few food trucks to park in front of this building. Um, so that's one food option. Uh, if they're not there for some reason, um, if you go up towards Main Street, it's about a block or so away. There's an Au Bon Pain, maybe a few, another option or two. This is kind of the doldrums on Saturday around here, but um, 
one or two places will be around if the trucks are not there. Um, anyway, uh, thanks to our panel. This was a terrific discussion, and to the audience as well. Thank you. Thank you. And we resume at 1.30.